Both royals and celebs carefully manipulate their image to communicate glamour, health, power, authority, prestige and uniqueness. They perform their public identities, projecting artfully constructed personas. And the fictions are so dominant and so pervasive that a glimpse of either looking slouchy in sweatpants while picking their nose is a potent image for which we will pay good money. In particular, the celebrity industry deliberately fosters this dichotomy. It elevates the poised, glamorous persona as the apotheosis of allure, so that we are thrilled by the long-range paparazzi snaps of celebs looking tired and frumpy. There's a goldmine to be plundered in building them up to then knock them down. And it's a violent game of dodgeball that begins as soon as someone arrives in the public arena, ready or not. Royalty's image construction is outwardly similar, projecting glamorous excellence. However, unlike celebrity, the traditional royal image could never slip. For the glamour of the royal aesthetic represents much more than just the individual. The monarch is a political idea. It's the nation in fleshy form. In medieval Christian theology, a monarch had two bodies, one mortal and one political. When the silver-haired ruler wheezed at their last breath or took an assassin's dagger to the gut, the cry went up, The king is dead! Long live the king! A monarch was both person and ideological concept. The individual perished, but the crown was immortal. We see this in the portraits issued by England's long-reigning virgin queen, Elizabeth I, which froze her regal beauty in the prime of health. All the while, her body sagged with age and her teeth blackened through sugar consumption. Their astonishingly sophisticated artworks, pregnant with symbolism about the robust health of the monarchy. But there's little of the real woman in there. I believe the most revealing thing about them is what she chose to hide. Footnote. Social theorist Chris Rojek argues that modern celebs also have two bodies, one biological and one perpetually frozen in media imagery. Usually, royalty upholds the status quo. Celebrity, by contrast, initially appears to be disruptive. It chucks stones through the windows of traditional privilege, then proffers a ladder for low-born scruffs to clamber in through the broken glass. It's a profitable system designed to tickle a fickle public through repetitious novelty, a constant churn that's achieved by shaking the ladder to dislodge those at the top. The rhythms of this brutal turnover are jerkily aggressive compared to the gradual generational handover of power that royal inheritance provides. But in truth, celebrity is not actually all that disruptive because we've already heard how famous provocateurs perform a social function as arbiters of public taste and decency. So celebrity and royalty are similar but separate. However, they have sometimes fused together. When Max Weber wrote his masterwork on charismatic power, he created three categories. The first, charismatic authority, heroes with dynamic personalities. The second, traditional authority, which is hereditary rulers upheld by custom. And the third, legal authority, political office upheld by the law. During Weber's lifetime, royalty seemed to be in trouble. Even though ermine robes and shiny gold hats are tremendously dapper, he assumed the concept of monarchy was under threat from exciting celebrities and shouting revolutionaries. 
As it turned out, some monarchs had already spotted the danger. The most obvious response was a sudden upswing in historicised pomp and ceremony, with the British monarchy suddenly giving it large on military parades and faux medieval ceremonies to convince unruly subjects of the eternal legacy of the crown. But royals didn't just try to drown out celebrity with gaudier, noisier parades. They also embraced its techniques. In the mid-19th century, both Queen Victoria and Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany welcomed photography as a way of bolstering their fading charisma. The risks were palpable. While increasing access made monarchs reassuringly present in people's lives, it arguably cheapened royal prestige, with these images being sold side by side with those of common actresses, musicians and even criminals. It was the equivalent of a Hollywood A-lister appearing in a late series of Celebrity Big Brother. We'd obviously watch the hell out of that, but we'd lose respect for them when we saw them squabbling about whose turn it was to do the washing up. But these royals mostly got away with it, not least because they refused to totally commit to the celebrity lifestyle. Kaiser Wilhelm was willing to pose for photos, but he blanked requests for autographs. Portraiture had a prestigious heritage. Autographs did not. In 1934, the royal wedding of Prince George, Duke of Kent, and the glamorous Princess Marina of Greece was also surprisingly modern. He was 31, she 27, and the public treated her more like a celebrity than royalty. She was pretty and fashionable, loved to smoke cigarettes and dance at parties, and the press were thrilled by the romance. As the historian Edward Owens notes, more than on any previous occasion, the wedding was a royal event driven by publicity intimacy and a coterie of courtiers, clerics and newsmen who were committed to elevating a family monarchy as the emotional centre point of national life. The Windsors embraced the public curiosity and laid on a wedding low on pomp and circumstance but high in narrative charm. It was a clever strategy, unfortunately undercut soon after when King Edward VIII abdicated the throne to marry the scandalous American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Continuing the trend, Britain's current monarchy has re-energised its 21st century brand through the media-savvy tactics of Princes William and Harry and their wives. Though born into the most rarefied of families, the young Windsors grew up in a youth culture which has profoundly shaped their tastes. Prince Harry likes grime music. He calls people mate. The Duchess of Cambridge wears Topshop. The Windsors have cunningly bolted the accessible aesthetics of celebrity to the structural privilege of ancient royalty, creating a powerful hybrid meant to shield them from serious media intrusion. Of course, the tragic fate of their mother has strengthened their arm in this. Yet it also grants them a movie-style glamour that makes them likeable to a younger generation. The fact that both princes married gorgeous commoners also sells the idea that royalty is no longer a bastion of snobbish exclusion. It's not democratic, but it's becoming a bit more demotic. Even oiks like us have the tiniest chance of marrying into ancient hereditary power. And while such increased accessibility could have devalued the power of traditional pageantry, it turns out the world goes even more doolally for a royal wedding when it involves a celebrity. One third of Brits watched Meghan Markle, an American actress, wed Prince Harry in 2018. And some estimates put the global audience at nearly 2 billion. This strategy boosted the monarchy's popularity after years of tabloid scandal, though much of it has been undone by the extremely serious allegations against Prince Andrew. 
Moreover, the same tactic eventually failed with Princess Diana. Her increasingly celebrified brand gradually dragged the royal family into prolonged crisis before her tragic death reset the machine. Fittingly, as I was writing this book, Meghan Markle seemed to acquire Diana's mantle of beautiful tabloid punchbag and became the focus of vicious online gossiping, not least because she's American, a woman of colour, a divorcee and a former actress, all of which brought out the worst in certain media commentators. It wasn't terribly surprising when Harry and Meghan announced that they were stepping down from senior duties to instead become a financially independent transatlantic power couple whose hybrid fusion of royalty, celebrity and philanthropy would be performed behind a veil of increased privacy. The backlash against her was predictably intense. Meghan had been attacked as a gold digger who only wanted the title wealth and status, but then, in an absurd volte face, was now criticised for not wanting those things enough. She was neglecting her patriotic duty by rejecting the luxury lifestyle that people wanted to yell at her about. Very strange. Of course, it was Meghan who was to blame, even when Harry said it was his decision to step down. Whether a life of posh celebrity is more pleasant than one of royal obligation is yet to be seen. But if they can emulate Beyoncé's amazing media strategy, they will be fine. Diana wasn't the first case study in disaster. In the 1780s, Queen Marie Antoinette, having found the stuffy protocol of Versailles too restrictive, began seeking a life away from her husband's stifling court. She attended the theatre and opera while incognito, but the sort of ludicrously obvious incognito that made everyone go, uh, isn't that the Queen? Much like Caesar, she had all the subtlety of a foghorn. She also began issuing startlingly intimate and informal portraits of herself wearing what looked to be underwear, but were in fact simple new gowns designed by her fashion guru, Rose Bertin, who capitalised on the Queen's patronage by then selling these gorgeously elegant designs to the public from her Parisian showroom. Yes, even in the 1780s, people could choose to dress like the stars. Marie Antoinette was recast from austere queen consort into trend-setting celebrity, but it meant the distance between her and scandalous actresses shortened year on year, until soon her sex life was up for grabs, with rumours of frenzied masturbation, scandalous lesbianism and extramarital shagathons dominating Parisian gossip. The pornographic satire was incredibly visceral, Footnote, if you're feeling brave, Google it. You'll see her alleged lover riding a giant penis as if it's a two-legged horse. When the French Revolution erupted in 1789, born from a variety of complex socio-economic causes, Marie Antoinette was beyond saving. It wasn't just her exorbitant spending on diamond necklaces, alienation from the struggling poor and alleged pro-Austrian treachery that doomed her, although those were all terrible things, the monarchy's mystique had been slowly eroded by caustic celebrity drama. The Queen had become no different to any other salacious courtesan. Royalty had lost its mysterious power, and so she lost her head. So royalty and celebrity can sometimes overlap, but I don't think it's typical. However, in the interests of openness, I should now honk my academic debate klaxon and offer you the chance to side with Chris Rojek, Brian Cowan and Joseph Roach, who will likely disagree with everything I've just said. They instead argue that monarchs, such as King Henry VIII, possessed a sort of sacred celebrity in which art, 
fashion and ceremonial ritual generated public intimacy extending beyond the physical limitations of the royal court. In short, rather than seeing celebrity as a novel upstart in the 1700s, they see continuities from a pre-modern era. And this is a key point for discussion. I'm arguing that royalty is different to celebrity, even if they can share elements. But continuity is indeed crucial, it's a fair point. Celebrity didn't suddenly erupt out of nowhere. The explosion of commerce and mass culture in the 1700s expanded the possibilities of public renown in ways that dramatically affected society. And it's this big picture focus that matters most in my argument. But those who acquired their newfound celebrity probably experienced sensations and interactions that would have been familiar to notable people from prior centuries. Celebrity was a process that built on what went before. And this brings me back to the Julius Caesar question. If he wasn't a celebrity, and if he wasn't quite royal, then what was he? Well, I think he was the same as Nell Gwynn. I think he was famous. This is another word we chuck around with indiscriminate abandon, leading to its modern definition becoming baggier than a wizard's sleeve. Famous means anyone or anything with a public reputation. A building can be famous, or a donut, or a train crash, or a cartoon tiger used to sell breakfast cereal. We happily use fame and celebrity as synonyms. I'm doing it in the book sometimes when I can't be bothered to think of a better alternative. But distinctions can be made. The problem is, those distinctions are really elusive. But it's high time we gave it a go.